If you can stand with me uh, to read God's word. Reading Philippians 4, 2 through 7. Um, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have <clears throat> labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can be seated. Thanks, Stephen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I wore my mountain flannel shirt in honor of the guys on the retreat since I couldn't join them. Um, this morning we, we have a short passage, so that's the good news, uh, so hopefully I won't ramble on for too long, um, but it's some pretty heavy stuff, especially at the beginning of it. So um, today's passage starts with a conflict, and I was trying to think of like what would be a good example, what would be a good conflict to talk about that we could all relate to, and uh, I thought about, you know, because I always like to throw C.S. Lewis in there if I can or whatever. And I thought about the conflict between him and J.R.R. Tolkien that y'all are probably familiar with. They would, uh, conflict is a stretch, but they would have these arguments. Uh, and they're, like I'm from South Carolina, I would call it an argument. They were Oxford Dons. I think they would call it an intellectual discussion. Um, but they would meet every Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. And Charlie Williams, who's another author, would join them from time to time. They were, it kind of changed over the years, but you, you've heard of this, the Inklings. They would meet at, um, at 10 in the morning on Tuesday at a pub called the Eagle and Child. And they would have a pint, and they would read whatever they were writing to each other. And then they would critique it. And so they actually would get into these um, pretty heated discussions because, um, you know, Tolkien was telling Lewis, you're not detailed enough, especially when he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia. It's like, you're not going into detail. It's only, you only have a 200-something page book. They were kids' books, so it's okay. Um, and then he would tell Tolkien, you sometimes maybe go a little too far in the other direction. Um, and he was writing Lord of the Rings, and, it, you know, it, there might be a good argument. I mean, he invented languages to go along with the books he was writing. So there, might, there was probably some, some truth in both of that. But then I thought about it, and um, that's probably not a good example of conflict for what we're talking about this morning, because their, their conflict didn't end their relationship. In fact, it may have strengthened it. It certainly made their books better for us to be able to read through them and enjoy them. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've actually been to the Eagle and Child. There's a little room, and there's a framed letter that they all signed to the guy that owned it at that time. And, it's, I just wish I could have been there because I did it for decades just to be there and be close enough to listen to them and hear what they're saying and talking about and, and kind of get a preview of the, of the book that's coming up. And um, it would have been an exciting thing. But we know um, that it didn't, this conflict, if you want to call it that, did not end their relationship. In fact, um, we're coming up this month will be um, 50 six years since C.S. Lewis passed away. And uh, 
when he passed away, Tolkien was talking to his wife and he said, I don't know exactly what he said, but here's the, here's the gist of it. He said, honey, or whatever his pet name was for his wife, uh, sugar, baby doll, whatever. Um, he said, I've been losing a lot of friends lately and it's felt like leaves falling off of a tree. He said, but this one feels like somebody took an ax to the trunk. So you know that whatever that conflict was didn't destroy their relationship. It probably made it better. So um, that's a conflict that was resolved uh, in a good way uh, for all of our benefits and for the kingdom's benefit. So um, I wanted to share um, another conflict that maybe didn't end, that did not end as well and kind of tie it to our scripture passage today. Um, Conflicts, the consequences of conflicts, like the ones that we're going to look at in verses 2 and 3, if they're, they're much more severe if they're not resolved among believers. So let me share something personal with you. Um, like some of you, um, probably, in a, a crowd this big, um, I came from a broken home. My parents um, split up when I was 13, got back together when I was 14, Split up again when I was 17, got divorced when I was 18. You know, high school and middle school was a fun time. It's <laughs> uh, just difficult. Um, and every situation is different, so I'm not making a blanket statement about any other uh, situation like that. But I will say this. Um, based on what I've learned and what I know about my parents and their situation, um, I'm convinced that their situation was made worse and ultimately ended their marriage because they did not communicate well. And I don't think the guys are listening to this, but if you listen to it this week, take heed to that, guys, because we aren't very good. Let's, we can confess that. Guys are not that great at communicating sometimes. Can I get an amen, ladies? Uh, <laughs> so just remember that. You know, it, it's, you need to communicate, and it's not going to get better if you don't talk about it. It's going to fester and get worse. And so you need, to, you need to address that. Now, my, my parents' marriage ended as all marriages end with a legal term. So there has to be some type of reason for the courts to dissolve this marriage. And this is from a legal standpoint. But um, So theirs was, and you've heard this phrase before, irreconcilable differences. Okay. Well, both of my parents were believers, and I say were not because anybody lost their salvation, but because my dad passed away. It's been almost 21 years. Um, but they were both believers. So just like a divorce will impact people beyond the couple, it impacts the children, it impacts the extended family, it impacts the church. Um, a conflict between two Christians in a church will have the same devastating, far-reaching impact if we don't, to use a Barney Five phrase, nip it in the bud. We need to address the situation and talk to each other. So, um, Stephen, you did, you did a great job of pronouncing those ladies' names. I had to listen to my um, ESV app on my phone. So you said it the way the dude said it. So we're, we're just going to take that as for what it is. I wish they'd have just been like Mary and Beth. I mean, that'd have been a lot easier. <laughs> but, um, but Yodia and Syntyche are having... Um, let me read verse 2 again. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This passage is the climax of this entire letter. 
all this stuff that Paul has been writing to the church in Philippi, all the things he's been saying, the things that we have been going through over the last few months, this is like the climax. This is where it all comes into play. All these things he's been talking about. Paul's urging these ladies to agree in the Lord. And this call, this exhortation, this this isn't something that he's just throwing in the letter as an afterthought. Like he's not going, oh yeah, I remember those two ladies are having a problem. I need to say something about that. That's not what's going on. Um, he's asking these two ladies to apply what he's been writing about in this entire letter. These ladies are leaders within the church. They were there at the beginning. Um, so their conflict, whatever it is, is is threatening the gospel there at Philippi. And it needs to be resolved. So reconciliation is gospel application. So when you look at this, um, we have divided up Philippians into chapters and verses. So we're in the first part of chapter 4 now. It wasn't like that, obviously, when Paul wrote it. It is a letter. So this isn't like another section. Like This is just part of that body of that letter where he's addressing an issue. The gospel is relevant in every part of our life, obviously, and definitely including personal conflict. But gospel reconciliation requires gospel thinking. We need to remember that. So I want you to compare... um, this conflict and what Paul is saying to earlier in the letter in chapter 2 verse 2 he said complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind so he's reminding them of what he said at the beginning of the letter that we need to be together in this this conflict uh, between these two churches had gotten to a head and was a critical situation for the future of the church in Philippi One of the commentaries that I used um, actually doesn't use the term conflict. It says, it uses the word disunity. And actually, that helps me uh, to understand it even more because conflict can have different levels and different things like that. But disunity, that's a good word because Christians, if we're not united, if we're under the same mind, if we're not agreeing in the Lord, then we're causing damage to the gospel's cause. And the world sees it. And the world wants to dwell on that. And they want to point out and say, uh, yeah, they've got problems. They're not together. Why would I believe this gospel message they're talking about when they're not living it themselves? So we don't know the details. We don't know uh, what the actual conflict was. But the fact that Paul didn't give more details implies that the people of Philippi, the church there, that they know. Pe- people have not changed in 2,000 years. So they didn't need Twitter uh, or whatever your favorite way of communicating is. They, they actually talked back then some. Um, and uh, they didn't need to share. Like Everybody knew probably what was going on in this body. That these two ladies who were leaders, who were there at the beginning, were having some type of conflict that was jeopardizing the the unity within that church at Philippi. And whatever it was, it was serious enough for Paul to actually write their names 
in that letter. So, verse 2, he's stressing the need for gospel reconciliation. In verse 3, he's stressing the need for gospel mediation. So let's read verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, hear these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, Paul doesn't identify this true companion. Um, We know it's not Timothy because at the beginning of the letter, he's like, hey, Timothy and I send you greetings. So it's not Timothy. Um, There are some people that think it was Luke because he may... Uh, have likely been in Philippi during this time, and obviously he was somebody that Paul trusted. We don't know. We don't know who it was. But whoever it was, it was somebody that Paul trusted to be a gospel mediator to help uh, these two ladies reconcile their differences for the sake of the gospel. And uh, the ESV, which that's the the version of uh, the Bible that we teach from usually, uh, love it. It's a great translation. But sometimes I like to read other translations uh, just to kind of um, see different words and things like that. Um, and I broke out my grandfather's King James Version. Um, and it's the, you know, I grew up learning and memorizing verses out of the King James, and we don't talk that way anymore. Um, but, but it's pretty cool sometimes. And it actually brings me home to, to read, um, you know, scripture in, in, that old English language of how I learned scripture. Um, but here's what it says. It said, it doesn't use true companion. It reads true yoke fellow. Okay. That term yoke fellow gives me a good visual. Okay. Uh, Cause my grandfather, he lived his entire life on the same piece of property, never moved off this property. Uh, he was a farmer. He was a carpenter. Um, actually, both my grandfathers were farmers and carpenters, but this particular grandfather, he, um, he had a mule named Mandy. Um, y'all ever spend much time around a mule? <laughs> you know what they say about mules? You ever been called a mule? <laughs> uh, they're stubborn. They're stubborn, but man, they, you, get them, you get them on the right track, like you can do some stuff with a good mule. And Mandy, now she was a good mule, if anybody in here is named Mandy, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know where that name came from um, and why he named a mule that. But uh, so anyway, but Mandy, um, she would really do good um, in his garden. And like by the time I came along, like they had, they had tractors and, you know, the big farming stuff they were doing, the soybeans and, and cotton and things like that, they used tractors. But on the smaller jobs, they would, to save fuel, they would use Mandy. So she would do great, but if there was a big job, like pulling up a stump or something massive, they would need to get some help. And so um, they, would, they would borrow another mule from the Taylor boys that were the next farm over. Okay, the Taylor boys is what everybody called them, so it's what I called them when I was a child. They were in their 70s and 80s. <laughs> like, they were three bachelor brothers. Like, I don't even know what their names are. They were the Taylor boys. But the Taylor boys had a mule. And so what would happen is they would work together. So anytime there was something that was at least the two-mule job, they would hook those mules together with a yoke. And you know what a yoke is. We normally think of it like oxen and, and the biblical context. When, you, when you're yoking two mules together, at least the ones that my grandfather had, it was this leather and wooden and chain contra- contraption. So it wasn't like the kind. It was, it was pretty big, um, but it wasn't massive 
wooden ones like I normally think about with oxen and things like that. But it did the trick. And they're stubborn, so you had to yoke them together to get them to head in the same direction and to do the same task at the same speed and the same way. Um, and so I actually like that yoke fellow term because companion, I like that, that's good. Um, I read the New American Standard, it says true comrade. That sounds a little Eastern European uh, to me. Um, but, uh, but yoke fellow, like it, just from my background and spending time on my grandparents' farm, that one, that one hit home to me. Because when we are walking together in unity, like we're like Mandy and the Taylor Boys mule. Like we're hooked up and we're heading in the same direction and we're accomplishing something together. And in this case, as believers, we should be unified for the gospel's sake and showing the world what unity really looks like and what it means to be yoked together. So thanks to Mandy. I have a pretty good idea of that. So like those mules, um, you know, Paul mentions actually earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, he's like striving side by side. And he's talking about these ladies too, not calling them mules. Um, but he's saying, ladies, we work side, to ga- side by side together when this church, Philippi, was planted. So these ladies were important, uh, important members and important leaders within this church. And he said, if we, he's making the point that if we work side by side to contend for the gospel, then you should be able to reconcile in the gospel. And he also says their names in the book of life, them and others that he mentions. Um, So they're going to be reconciled in heaven. So why can't they be reconciled now? So let me bring this a little bit closer to home. I want to read those verses again with different names. And uh, I asked Hart if it was okay to do this because he's not here. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's fine, but make sure everybody knows that you and I are fine, <laughs> like there's no conflict. So this is a hypothetical, okay? <laughs> so I want you to know that Hart and I uh, are, are doing well. There's no <laughs> conflicts. But I want you to pretend with me for a second. I want you to pretend that Midlands Church got a letter this week, and it's from Matt Haste, okay? And in Matt's letter... He's writing us all these encouraging things that are like in the first part of Philippi. And then he gets to this part. And here's what he says. I entreat, or to go back to the King James, I actually like the word they use better, I beseech. That's a good old King James word. (laughs) Um, I beseech heart and I beseech Randy to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these men who labored who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Brad and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. If we got a letter from Matt like that, it would be very, I mean, it'd make a big impact here at Millens, wouldn't it? Because Hart and I are elders in a leadership role and we need to be yoked together and focused on the gospel and not on our, whatever our little petty thing is that we want or desire or think it should be like, it's the gospel, and the gospel is what matters. So I wanted to do that just to, to kind of bring it home and give it names that we can relate to. So um, anyway, so that impact that we would feel with a letter like that, that's what was going on with Philippi. Like 
They know that there's a conflict. They know that there's something going on. They know that it's causing some ripples in church. And this letter wasn't like written to that true companion, hey, keep this secret. Like this was written for, to be read in front of the church. It was read in front of the entire church. I don't know where Yodia and Synthike were sitting, but probably not beside each other. <laughs> but think about the impact that would have, that they would realize, man, that this is serious, and I need to get my focus off of me and on the Lord. And here's the interesting thing. The word irreconcilable appears only once in the New Testament. Um, the ESV actually translated, translates it as unappeasable. It's in 2 Timothy 3.3, 3, and it's used to describe non-Christians. Irreconcilable literally means no offering or no altar. So listen to this. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross canceled out that word, irreconcilable, for believers. Because he was the offering for our sins. He was slain on the altar as a sacrifice, the only offering that was sufficient to cover our sins. So for us as Christians to say that we have irreconcilable differences with another believer is to literally say that the offering of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, was insufficient to overcome whatever conflict that I have with my brother or sister. When you think of it that way, you realize that in Christ, there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. There will be no irreconcilable differences in heaven, and there should be none among believers on earth. Now, I started this with telling you about my parents, both believers. My dad passed away almost 21 years ago, and y'all know my mom's under hospice care now. There's a reunion coming, and there won't be a need to reconcile in heaven because the focus will not be on them. They're not getting married again. That's not the reconciliation that's going to happen. It's going to be a reconciliation because of the grace of God. And so when we think about that and what's coming for all of us, I don't believe there's awkward moments in heaven because the Bible tells us there's no tears, there's no sorrow. But if there was awkward moments in heaven, that would be one of them. When you show up and there's that guy that you had that fight with and you never reconciled. Mm. But we're not going to be thinking that in heaven. We're going to be worshiping the Lord. And that's what we should be doing here, isn't it? So there's the, the conflict part of the message. And let's move on into some commands that Paul gives us. Command one, verse four says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Does Paul really mean rejoice always? Well, he says it twice for emphasis. And in the writing of the day, that's what you did when you're trying to make a point. Don't skip. Don't miss this. When you're talking to your children, um, do they listen to the first thing every time? Okay. So it's good to repeat because we need to hear that sometime. Paul's saying rejoice always. It's difficult to rejoice in the Lord always, isn't it? I mean, some circumstances are tough. So I've got another personal. Like, I don't have any Prince songs this week or Hanson, sorry. These are personal stories that I've got. Um, but I wanted to share another personal story with you. And I asked her permission as well. So Leah, 
Our youngest uh, is on the front row today, uh, and Leah's 18, but when she was five, um, I used to, when I was taking my seminary courses, I was working full-time here, so I never, like, quit my nine-to-five or whatever hours I was working, but my full-time job here, and I did seminary, you know, kind of a piecemeal, some at CIU, some at, a, at Southwestern out in Texas. And Southwestern, actually, their main campus is in Fort Worth, but they have a satellite campus in the Houston area. And so Leanne's aunt and uncle live on Galveston Bay, and we would go stay with them, and I would do a week-long class, and then they would be able to spend time with basically another set of grandparents is what they were like. And um, so we were out there, and it was my last uh, one-week seminary class in January of 07, I believe, was it 07? Yeah. Um, you sure? It was February. There you go. Okay. Um, she was, you know, she was there. Uh, so anyway, she was five. But so we're out there, and I've had this class, and she's had a cold, we thought, all week long. And so we're supposed to get up the next morning and start heading back. Um, and there's not a fun, easy way to get from here to Texas or back, uh, especially Houston. It's boring. You go I-20 to Fort Worth, or you go I-10 to Houston. That's how you do it. So we're going to head back at about 7 that morning. About 5 o'clock, we get up, Lynn, you know, realizes something's wrong. And so we rush uh, to the ER with Leah. And it turns out it's developed into full-blown pneumonia. And the doctors can't figure out, is it viral or is it bacterial? So they have to treat for both. Um, she, uh, she was put in ICU. And she was in ICU for five days. Okay? Moms and dads, your child, some of y'all have been in this situation where you don't know and you feel helpless and you don't know what to do because your child's sick and you're the parent. You want to take care of them. You want to protect them. And you're in a situation where you're totally, you feel totally helpless. So um, here's some things that happened. The doctor said it was so serious that if we'd have left home for home that morning, um, she would have probably died somewhere on I-10 in the southwestern part of Louisiana. There's nothing there. I don't know if you've driven that stretch, but um, it's where they film swamp people. <laughs> if that'll give you a clue. Um, there's nothing there. There's like this 20-mile-long bridge that's elevated, and it's just swamp all around it. Um, you, you can't even turn off. Like if your car breaks down, you just have to hope nobody hits you. So she would have passed away, more than likely, according to what they were saying. So, obviously, it's a stressful time. Um, and it's hard to rejoice in the Lord when you're worried about your child living or dying. And you don't have any control over that outcome. And I felt completely helpless as a dad. You know, Leanne is the mom, and moms, you know, moms y'all are fantastic. Um, and so Leanne was there. In the evening, she spent the night with Leah, and I would come and give her a break during the day um, and just sitting there all day long with Leah, who can't tell it by looking at her right now, wide open as a five-year-old, um, life of the party, uh, and just laying there, uh, seemingly almost lifeless for five days. And it was so difficult. And I actually thought about this verse, like you're supposed to rejoice always in the Lord. And I started thinking, all right, what are some things that I can rejoice about? Because uh, this is going to be hard. Well, first thing is we didn't leave. We weren't on I-10. 
we went to the doctor, went to the emergency room. So I was thankful for that, and I rejoiced that we were not on the road and away from help. Um, I rejoiced that we were staying with Leanne's aunt and uncle because her big sister, you know, they took care of her. So we didn't have to, we could focus on Leah and taking care of Leah. And we had a place to stay. We weren't in a hotel or on campus at a seminary. We were, you know, in comfortable surroundings in a place that we had spent like days and weeks. You know, we, you know, we loved them. We loved Leanne's Geraldine and Odie. That's their names. Um, just love them. So that was a blessing. So I was rejoicing in that. And the fact that they lived on Galveston Bay and the seminary just happened to have a satellite campus because Fort Worth, you ever been to Texas? Fort Worth and Houston are not close. <laughs> and, you know, it's a big country. <laughs> That's what they call it. Um, <laughs> so, so the fact that they actually had a satellite campus near family was fantastic. And just so happens that's one of the best children's hospitals in the country and one of the best ones for treating what she had. If she'd have had the same thing here, not that things wouldn't have been fine, but the level of care there was unbeatable. So we were very, very thankful for that. And you know, you go wherever you need to go to take care of your children. So we were very thankful for that. So day five gets here and I'm telling you, it was like a light switch. All this prayer, people back home praying, at our church praying. Uh, and it was like a light switch just flipped. Leah woke up, and she was back to her old self. Now, it's not fair that it happened when I was there because Lynn did all the hard, you know, overnight stuff. So I'm the one there that gets to enjoy that moment. And then it was funny because we, like, walked around that floor, and she was like this movie star. Like, she was, everybody just loved talking to her, and she was alive for the party. And, but then everybody said it was a miracle because it, it was. It was a miracle. So ultimately, I was able to rejoice in her healing as well. That doesn't always happen. So I think we need to remember that whatever our circumstances, the God's faithful, and he will never leave us. And even when it seems completely hopeless, we can trust that he is going to carry us through even if he has to literally carry us in his arms through that difficult situation. Command number two, verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So it's another case where it was good for me, helpful for me to read some other translations because reasonableness, that sounds too, I'm an engineer. That sounds like you're trying to do some calculations. Um, other translations say, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Um, and whenever that word is used, it's translated into reasonableness or gentleness. It's usually pointing to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Um, what Paul's saying, he's telling the Philippians that your reasonableness, your gentleness, should characterize how you interact with everybody, including your enemies. Another difficult verse. Like, is it difficult to show gentleness? Show compassion to your enemies? It, it, it's something you have to deal with. And he wraps up that verse with how we can do that. He says, the Lord is at hand. Paul's reminding them that the Philippians and us can be kind and peaceful and gentle even toward our enemies because we know Jesus is coming back and setting everything right. And that's, that is something to grasp onto 
and to be thankful for. So, Commands 3 and 4, verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are short and full of commands, and they're difficult to keep. <laughs> so, and it's interesting, he slaps them in there in that letter right after this conflict issue that he's trying to help them get resolved. So, think about this verse. Anybody ever anxious about anything? Not me. I'm totally fine all the time. I don't worry about anything. I don't. Uh, no. Obviously, we, we have concerns about that and we deal with that. So how do we do the first part of that verse? How do we be anxious for nothing? The second part of that verse tells us. By prayer and supplication, big fancy word that Randy needed to look up some you know, other uh, words to go there. It means to plea. To plea to the Lord. So by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, that's the hard part, let your request be made known to God. It's not just that act of praying, but it's that proper attitude in that prayer. One commentary put it this way. It, I don't know if they meant this to rhyme, but it, but it did. It said, gratitude is the right attitude. So gratitude because we approach a throne of grace and not judgment. So if you're anxious about anything, and we are, there are times we're anxious about all kinds of things. Our job, our school, a big test, or four of them on the same day. Um, our children, you know, decisions they're making, uh, illnesses within the family. There are all kinds of things that we get anxious about. Jesus said, bring them on. Bring them to me. Back to that yoke thing. What does he say about his yoke? It's light. I can handle it. I can cover it. You bring it to me. So we read these verses, and we have these commands. So now what? What happens when we follow these commands? Verse 7 tells us, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That first word in that verse, and, is a big word. Three letters, big word. Because... It being at the beginning, that verse shows us what will happen when we make our request known to God. What will happen is this divine peace is just going to transcend whatever earthly circumstances you're going through. It's going to surpass all earthly understanding. It doesn't mean that the things that you're dealing with are going to go away. But what it means is this. God's peace does not depend on peaceful circumstances. But he will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that is something to rejoice about. So when we go through these times and trials and times where it's hard, where it's difficult to rejoice, where we're going through a struggle with somebody that we care about, um, or maybe it's a situation where we, ha we feel hopeless, God's saying, I'm not going to leave you, and I'm going to get you through this, and just trust me. Because ultimately, as believers, we don't live in this world. To get my, another C.S. Lewis quote in there, um, he said, if, if nothing in this world satisfies me, and I long for something else, then I'm not of this world. 
And we as believers are not because our world is with the Lord. We're going to spend eternity with Him. That's something to rejoice about. One thing that we do every week that is a, is a way to rejoice is communion. I've shared this story before. Let me, let me just share it real quick again. Um, but uh, Andrew Peterson um, is uh, one of my favorite singers and, and authors. But a uh, weird thing is he did a commentary album for his uh, The Burning Edge of Dawn album a couple years back. And the commentary, like what he says in between the songs, I actually like better than the songs. Like it's like being at a concert and hearing him introduce these songs. But this particular song was, was about conflict. And it was about, you know, just trying to work through these uh, difficult relationships and reconciling with another believer. And he said that their church does communion every week, just like we do. And this particular Sunday, he was heading to the communion table, and on both sides of him were some people that he had some serious history with, some people that he had done wrong and some people that had done him wrong. And he said the fact that all of them were being called up to the communion table to remember what Jesus did to erase those conflicts and to take them away and to reconcile them. He said it was just a wonderful time of like, Satan, man, you've lost because the Lord has taken care of everything about me that's lacking. And so they were able to go to that table and fellowship together. So this morning, um, we have one table. Uh, so we're on this side because um, we figured we'd have a little bit smaller crowd. Um, so I, I want to encourage you that if, you, if you're a believer, obviously we want you to participate. But if there's a conflict between you and someone else, then it might be a better time to have a conversation with that person if they're here today instead of going to the table. Reconcile. Remember for believers there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. So use this time to come to the Father, ask for forgiveness, and to reconcile, because he's already reconciled with you. Um, let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We just thank you for these. It's just a short passage this morning, but it, it's so powerful. It, it reminds us that, Father, uh, conflict among believers, even though it'll occur, Father, is not something that, that needs to be left unresolved. We need to come together. Uh, if we need to, if we see some of our brothers or sisters that are in conflict and we can be a mediator, Father, a gospel mediator, we need to be able, we need to do that and be willing to do that, Father. But Lord, I just pray, this, this is a very personal thing. Th these passages this morning are just very personal because um, we need to resolve our conflicts. We need to work together. Uh, Satan wants to drive a wedge between us because he is not happy with what you're doing here at Midlands. He is, he hates the gospel. And Father, we as believers know what price you paid for our salvation. And because of that, we know we're going to come before a throne of grace and not a throne of judgment. 
And we're thankful for that, Father. So, Father, I just pray that we'll rejoice, that we will um, remember, even in the worst of circumstances, that whatever we're going through is less than what you went through to save us. And we thank you for that. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus.